Welcome to a special edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Today is Good Friday, and it doesn't quite feel like it, does it? Things are a little off. Things are strange. Things are out of the ordinary. And it doesn't take long for us to start rethinking about the way we should or shouldn't feel about days such as Good Friday, how long is this going to last? How long until we get back to normalcy? Nobody seems to really know, but uh, I'm glad you decided to listen to this episode because I want to share with you what I think is a good correlation for us in the day and age in which we live about the coronavirus and Easter, what the connection is between the two and how we can view Easter as the joy that we seek after even in the face of difficulty and confusion and the unknown. And what I want to encourage you with, most of you who aren't able to meet with your churches this upcoming Easter, it's going to be a strange weekend, and I want to give you some biblical encouragement to view this time in which we live while we think about the coronavirus flooding our minds every time we turn on the TV or read a news article online, that the coronavirus is actually a backdrop for the true joy that we should have during Easter, especially today on Good Friday. So as you know, most churches meet on Good Friday, and the normal thing that we do when we meet together is we talk about the day that's kind of incidentally named Good Friday because the events, at least at surface level, are anything but good. It's the day where we consider Jesus crucified and buried, his death on the cross. And of course, Easter Sunday, or in a lot of places where it's called Resurrection Sunday, really has no meaning if we don't have that backdrop of the cross of Jesus' death. If he doesn't die, then there's no significance or it's really an unintelligible statement to even say that he rose from the dead unless he actually died. That's what we think about on Good Friday. And there's a familiar passage where you take one of the Gospels and you read about Jesus' betrayal in the garden in Gethsemane as he's praying And Judas comes with the men in the middle of the night. They seize Jesus and they begin this um, series of accusations, these kind of undercover, under the guise of night trials against him. And by daybreak, things are really shaping towards his crucifixion. It's a fascinating narrative, but that's the one that we're all familiar with. And we normally pick it up as far back as the garden, or we pick it up really in the midst of his death on the cross itself. It's a sobering time that we spend together as churches, and we're thinking about the work that he did on the cross on our behalf. It's a wonderful time because we need that reminder, and we need it even now more than ever as we remind ourselves reasons for joy on Easter Sunday. Well, I want to rewind a little bit further than Jesus' time in the garden when he is betrayed and arrested. I actually want to go all the way back to 
the time before that, a passage that we typically don't think about when we think about Good Friday, when we think about Easter Sunday especially. But that is going to be a passage I'm sure you're familiar with, just not one you might be familiar with in the context of Easter or Good Friday, and that is in John chapter 11. If you are a student of the Bible, if you're familiar with the um, navigating uh, system of the New Testament especially, you'll know that John 11 is the passage about the death of, of Lazarus. And really, we should probably think about it even more as the resurrection of Lazarus, because that's really the emphasis there. And there's a parallel here, isn't there, that the resurrection of Lazarus only makes sense and is only significant if we understand that he actually died. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. But it's a really uh, emotionally thrilling passage, because as it starts out in John 11, we're told that Lazarus was ill. He hadn't died yet, but he was sick. And if you're following the narrative, it's really kind of a strange positioning, because the way that Jesus' ministry had gone so far was really one spectacular thing after another, starting all the way back when he turned the water into wine. And from there, it's just a trajectory of of heightened um experiences and and heightened miracles and the crowd is just in absolute awe of who Jesus is and as all these things are kind of heaping one on top of the other all the way to John 11 you would think that there could really be nothing else to happen that would outdo the last miracle of course we know that that's you know not the case, because you get to John 11, and this miracle certainly outdoes all the rest, just in terms of this progression of Jesus revealing who he is. He's not only the one that turns water into wine, he's not only the one that has authority over the spirits, he's not only the one that has the ability to cleanse people, he's not only the one that can feed the 5,000. He's not only the one that has authority over the weather, but you get to John 11, and he is the one who has the authority and the power to raise the dead and bring them to life. And it's such an encouraging passage when we get to it, but it is not without a narrative context. It is not without real people with real emotions, real struggles, real fears. And that's what happens when Mary and Martha come to Jesus in the beginning of John 11, and they tell him that Lazarus is ill. Now, it's interesting the way that Lazarus is identified. He's identified as the one that Jesus loves. This is a similar title to the Apostle John, who's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's this uh, emphasis on the fact that Jesus really cared for this person, in this case, Lazarus. Now, what is so fascinating when you read this passage is that after Jesus is told that Lazarus is ill, remember, he hasn't died yet, he's just ill, it says in verse number 6, so when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That is such a fascinating little 
nugget of information because it seems counterintuitive to the alarming message that Mary and Martha bring to Jesus. The message is Lazarus is ill. In other words, come with haste to Lazarus so that you can heal him. Jesus' response is the exact opposite. He lingered for two days longer where he was before he decided to head that way. And of course, everybody at that time was probably quite confused. And in fact, we actually see this with his disciples later on in the passage. Uh, you get to, for example, passage uh, in verse number 11 says, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. It says in verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest in sleep. So the disciples are somewhat confused of what's happening here. And then it says in verse 14, Jesus plainly told them, Lazarus has died. Verse 15, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, again, that whole arrangement is really interesting um, because it is not the ideal course of events, right? The disciples are confused of what Jesus is doing, and then even after he plainly tells them what's happening, they're still kind of confused, right? They're really not sure what's going on. So we fast forward a little bit further into the passage, and Jesus says his famous phrase, his well-known I am statement of I am the resurrection and the life. By the time that Jesus gets to where he was going, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's what the passage says in verse number 17. And listen to this now, verse number 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, there's that consideration of timing. That's why we told you in the first place, right? We told you so that you would come quickly to heal Lazarus. Even here, she says, if you would have come right away, he wouldn't have even died. But now he's been dead for four days. Then she says this, But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she has faith. She believes in the resurrection. But she's looking at the final day, right? What we all believe as Christians, a final resurrection. But Jesus takes it one step further and says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And of course, the rest of the passage is to demonstrate this truth, because by the time Jesus comes to the tomb where Lazarus has been laid, he weeps, he cares very much for this man, but then he doesn't leave him there, does he? He literally raises him from the dead. It's the most extraordinary miracle at that time, that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He cries out to Lazarus, come out, and he does. And the whole crowd sees it happen. And it says, 
right after this passage, it is really just mind-blowing because Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He demonstrates this miracle. And right afterwards, it says, verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? And so on and so forth, the rest of the chapter goes. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Good Friday? What does this have to do with Easter? What does this have to do with the coronavirus of all things? Well, this passage is tremendously important to us for all of those connections between coronavirus, Easter, and Good Friday, because when we get to this passage, as I said, each of Jesus' miracles have been heightened and elevated and expanded on. Who he is, God in flesh, is very clearly demonstrated in each and every one of his miracles, but the final one here is that he literally has authority over life itself. He speaks and gives life. He cries out to Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus does. Lazarus springs forth to life, and he comes out of the tomb. And it was that very miracle that, on the one hand, caused many of the Jews to believe in him, but at the same time, it was that same miracle that served as the final straw for the Pharisees and the others to come up with the plot and say, okay, enough is enough. He just raised this man from the dead. We have got to get rid of this person. And again, it's fascinating that Jesus literally demonstrates that he has authority over life, and they say, okay, well, we have to crucify him. We, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to kill this man. We've got to destroy him somehow. We've got to get him out of here. I mean, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? He just demonstrated that not even death has authority over him in what he says, and they think that somehow they're going to silence him. But that is the way that it is in the passage. But following Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, he moves into Jerusalem. The very next thing that happens in the timeline of Jesus' life is that Jesus has his triumphal entry in John chapter 12, and he enters into Jerusalem, and he demonstrates who he is. And of course, again, there's the Palm Sunday passage, Jesus entering into Jerusalem and moving right into um, Passover week, where he is betrayed, crucified, and then raised Easter Sunday. Now, all of that is intricately connected. All of it follows a narrative. All of it follows a timeline, and all of it follows real people with real events. And it's fascinating to me in the day and age we live in, because right now, if you turn on the news, if you pick up your phone and try to go to Facebook, if you try to go to a news site or anything, COVID-19, coronavirus, whatever phrase you prefer to use, I mean, it's gripped the world. It's not only gripped our country, it's not only gripped Europe, it's not only gripped Asia, it has gripped the entire 
world. It is the absolute centerpiece of our existence right now. We live and move and have our being around the centerpiece of coronavirus, however terrible that sounds. That is our reality right now. And it's created a terrifying picture of uncertainty. I mean, you watch all of these social distancing measures and everything that's happening right now, all the direction or uh, commandments, depending on what where you live and how uh, how brutal everybody is being in terms of uh, authority and mayors and senators and everybody who's kind of putting out different protocols of how we're supposed to be living right now. Everybody's trying their best. Everybody's attempting to do their best, but we're operating in the unknown. And every one of these social distancing measures, they're safety measures, right? They're trying to preserve life, and they're trying to downplay fear and panic. But we as Christians and we as citizens in the United States, if you live here in the States, we're wrestling against an uncertainty and that uncertainty is death. If you really stop and think about it, the main thing that everybody is concerned about is death. Now, how do I know that? Well, if the coronavirus wasn't deadly, would we really care all that much about it? Would we really be spending much time trying to put measures into place and trying to second guess what it is that we're doing? Well, probably not. If we get sick, we get sick. Everybody gets sick here and there during their lives. But if this virus isn't a deadly virus, then there really is no need for concern, or at least no need to change our way of life entirely. But it appears that it is. At least that's how the evidence looks right now. And whether we're afraid of ourselves dying or we're afraid of somebody that we love dying, we're still operating with this uncertainty and this consideration of death. Well, you see the the parallel, don't you? You think about Mary and Martha and the rest of their friends there as well with, with Lazarus. Lazarus is ill, and they are wrestling with uncertainty. They don't know what this means. They don't know what's going to happen. All they know is Jesus really needs to come in and fix this situation right away. We don't have time to waste. But of course, Lazarus not only is sick, but he dies from the sickness. And they are kind of outside of themselves, not sure what to think about all of that, because now death has come. Death is the reality, and we are now in a phase of sorrow. And again, that's what we see in our own world. We are gripped by the reality of death. We're gripped by the reality of sickness. And we're scrambling, trying to preserve life in the best ways that we know how. But we can become fixated on that truth. We can become fixated on that reality and totally dismiss everything else. And what Jesus does here in this miracle the final one before he enters into Jerusalem is he demonstrates his absolute authority. And he even uses the sickness of Lazarus and he even allows that to kill him 
in order to demonstrate who he is once and for all. Now, does that sound cruel? Well, it does if there aren't good motives behind that. It does if it's just some kind of power trip, but of course Jesus doesn't operate that way. He operates for our good, and he operates for his glory, and he operates to reveal himself to us so that we might praise him and worship him all the more. And that's what Mary and Martha do, of course, along with the other disciples, because Jesus doesn't leave Lazarus to stay dead. He instead demonstrates who he is and his power over death by raising Lazarus from the dead. And again, we can make the mistake of disconnecting the passage about Lazarus being raised from the dead from the rest of the story. But I want to point out that during the triumphal entry, as it's so called, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know the passage, right? Well, right after that, it says that the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. That is absolutely astonishing. Where did the crowd come from in Jerusalem during Jesus' triumphal entry? They came from the news that Jesus had just risen somebody from the dead. That's the whole reason they went out to meet him and testified that he was indeed the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That was their response to what Jesus had done. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. So this narrative, this passage of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, carries over into the whole rest of Jesus' earthly ministry, especially right there during his triumphal entry. That miracle does not go down to the wayside. It actually elevates the whole rest of Jesus' engagement with the scribes and Pharisees when he enters into Jerusalem and is betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And there's a lesson for us here. And the lesson is this. We often forget who Christ is unless we have a very healthy context about ourselves in our lives. And that's really just a fancy way of saying when things are going well, we have the capacity mentally to think about Christ and remember who He is, but as soon as something changes, as soon as the trajectory is tweaked, we suddenly forget about things and become caught up in our own little worlds, whether that's frustration because I can't go out to eat where I want, whether that's we have a loved one who is sick and fighting for their lives with this virus, or even if we ourselves have this virus. Either way, regardless of what vantage point we're at, the coronavirus today has the capacity, at least from a human standpoint, to steal the show from the real story. Jesus doesn't stop ruling and reigning because of the coronavirus. The significance of his resurrection from the dead isn't downplayed because we're thinking about ventilators and masks. Instead, we should look to 
our lives, look to the things that we are focusing on, and bring them into conformity of who Christ is and what the true story is. You see it on the news all the time, right? They're trying to bring one story and elevate that story to some level of importance, and then there's another breaking story, and that story is battling for the next attention of the listeners and the viewers, and suddenly we've forgotten about that original story. Well, let's not forget about the real story here, even though our framework is all messed up because we're not in our places of worship, we're not approaching this weekend the same way that we normally would, and this is new territory for our country, it's new territory for my generation, especially that hasn't seen something like World War II firsthand, but still, Jesus rules and reigns. Jesus has authority over the dead. Jesus is still the resurrection and the life. And what is fascinating about the gospel, about the good news of who Jesus is, about what we're celebrating on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, is that in the gospel, we see a spread. We see an infection rate, even if you want to put it that way. But there is not a mortality rate. There's actually a rate of new life. The only mortality rate that there is, is the death of the old self. If you think about the gospel, the gospel is that which is taken to all nations. It is good news, it is good medicine for the soul that is spread out to all peoples of all nations, and it grows and grows and grows and flourishes. If we were to look at charts and look at graphs, there'd be no way that we could really fine-tune it and see every intricate new birth that happens in people when they come to Christ. But if we could... I think it would really fascinate us to the point where coronavirus or any other pandemic or any other event just becomes an afterthought in our minds. Not because we don't care about our lives and the world that we live in, but we remember to keep the most important thing the most important thing. And our joy and our focus is not stolen away. When we get to heaven and we are worshiping in the face of Christ himself in all of his glory. I don't think we're going to care much about things like the coronavirus and the stock market numbers. They will be an afterthought for us because what is before our eyes is so much more precious. So I want to encourage you that regardless of where you find yourself this weekend, regardless of how much you've been fascinated with the news of is this the end of the world? Is this going to change the way that I watch football? Or whatever other thoughts you've been having. My encouragement is that you don't let the news of the day and even the dangers of our time steal the focus away from the joy that we should have and the celebration that we should have even in the midst of real and true suffering that 
hundreds of thousands of people are experiencing all across the world. That was the case for Mary and Martha. They were experiencing real grief. They were dealing with a real mortality rate and a real sickness that came to somebody that they cherished and loved. But even in the midst of all that, Jesus reveals himself and comforts them and points them to the truth that matters the most, and that is that he is the resurrection and the life. And they believed that, and they lived joyfully and in response to that. And Jesus, even in the face of death itself, testifies that not only does he have the power to raise himself from the dead, but he himself cannot be kept by death, but will rise again. And that's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, that Jesus, though he died, did not stay dead. And because of that, we can trust him and what he says even more than any fear or any threat that is right before our eyes today. Well, friends, thanks for listening to this episode. I just wanted to send out this bonus podcast episode to you for some encouragement. We do live in a time right now that is quite unknown to us, and I just want to remind you of the most important thing that we could be thinking about, even if if this weren't Easter Sunday weekend. But since it is, what better time to realign our minds with the truth that we confess and the news that we call good news. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day. May the Lord bless you.